Welcome to the Co-Founders Podcast. Real life stories from startups to billion dollar iconic brands. Conversations with industry disruptors and inspiring leaders. Brought to you in part by WeWork, the world's largest network of co-working spaces. More info at WeWork.com and the Pro Business Channel, uploading the future. More info at ProBusinessChannel.com. Now let's join our host and guests on this episode of the Co-Founders Podcast. All right, we are locked and loaded, prepare for liftoff for another exciting episode of the Co-Founders and Startup Show, uh, brought to you in part by WeWork, as we mentioned. Uh, and Craig Williams is normally in the studios. He's actually traveling in Florida this week. So uh, shout out to Craig. And uh, I know you're tuning in, buddy. Yeah, so uh, you can call in if you want. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see if we have time for your call. All right, um, so Rich Casanova here in the driver's seat for this episode. We have some uh, great guests in the studio um, joining us. We're going to be talking about um, the legal aspect of uh, running your business from an intellectual property standpoint for entrepreneurs, as well as maybe some other business uh, law topics. Um, And first up, we're going to be talking about happiness. We need more of this, right? The dude has his happiness button on, uh, locked and loaded, and um, I'm excited to have this conversation. So, um, so Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, before you jump into to the happiness book. Absolutely. So my name is Chris Bush. I'm a recovering workaholic. <laughs> right. I was working in healthcare IT space for about two and a half years and um, was... Really unhappy doing what I was doing. And that was right out of college. But unfortunately, I had very little perspective on whether I was really happy or not. Right. I felt maybe I just should be unhappy for a while before I earn it later. <laughs> right, right, nice. And, yeah, because uh, you, you got to know how to measure that. We'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah. Absolutely. So basically, jumping to the ending, I'm now a science-based happiness expert. So there are a lot of... Uh, folks out there that will talk about, you know, go on this journey, go on this spiritual journey, et cetera. Right. Well, I took a different divergent approach and what, what was most effective for building my own happiness was focusing on the psychology and the amazing work that some of the folks in the positive psychology community have been doing in the past 10 years. We found some pretty mind blowing stuff about how to effectively build happiness, just like we build our bodies, our physical bodies, and no one's talking about it. So I took it upon myself to share it with the world. There's a positive psychology community? Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. How do I get to be a member? <laughs> <laughs> you start with my book. Is it a subscription? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And literally, like you said, you, you've written the book on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and perfect timing because there's so much chaos going on globally and just um, the, the issues of PC. You know, we don't know what's right or wrong anymore these days in terms of how to interact with people. Uh, one of my pet peeves is it seems like a phenomenon that anytime you are um, running into people, elevator coming and going, they always say, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. You're coming in to get coffee. How about just say hi, mm-hmm. right? You know, how's your day? You know, good to see you. Yeah, I actually interviewed a woman uh, for the compassion section of one of my books, and she said she did a little experiment, how she doesn't like how people always say, how are you? Yeah, yeah. But then they don't really care right, what you right. say. It doesn't matter. It's autopilot. So... She took it upon herself to actually answer. So they'd say, how are you? And she'd say, my foot hurts because I have the gout. Where do you go with that? They don't panic, yeah. yeah. So she did this for 100 people. And out of that 100, none of them really dug further to have an actual conversation. Like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, How can I help, et cetera, et cetera. So not a very scientific study. But I thought it was just kind of funny how she took it upon herself to do that and kind of... It builds to your point, Rich, that we live in a society where there's a lot of 
um, there's a lot of that we pretend to care going on, right, right. but that that's hurting everybody. Yeah. If uh, the the sort of heads down, power through, but not really care about anyone else right. is really hurting because compassion is um, you give compassion, you create happiness for the other person, you create happiness for yourself. Right. It's like free money. A lot of it's on the surface, right? It's exactly. Just, uh, a lot of surface level. Um, and yeah, talking about that that example, that scenario is, I remember a study that was done years ago, they actually, you know, was, uh, monitored like 100 people coming through a library and interacting with the librarian at the counter or a transaction like that. And they said that um, they would exchange their names, you know, because of that transaction. But they they analyzed if the if the person just reached out and part of the process just like touched their hand, um, you know, um, in greeting them. They said when they exited, they asked the, the person's name, the librarian, and um, by that little contact, the memory recall of that person's name went through the roof. We just don't have that interaction, right? Yeah. And it reminded me of, uh, there was a guy who worked, I, I went to the Westminster schools here in okay. Atlanta for high school, and there was a guy there, Scoot Diamond, who would greet. <laughs> I love that name. Yeah, That's Scoot name. Diamond. Yeah. And he would greet every student by name yeah. every single morning when we got out of our yeah. parents' cars. So he, he, hey, Chris, hey, Catherine, my yeah. sister, every morning for four years. And in retrospect, I don't think I really realized or appreciated the impact that that yeah. had, that I could walk in somewhere where people appreciated, uh, who knew me and appreciated my presence. Well, I think if we know our fellow citizens, their struggle and what they're going through and their challenges and can um, r- relate to them, much more empathy, and we wouldn't have some of these challenges we have, right? And so if we can connect but also know more about what, what gets them excited. What is their happiness um, buttons, if you will? Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll touch on uh, the first point you made, which was um, the empathy, the yeah. point of empathy drought that we're in. Uh, I interviewed a guy named David Geller, uh, who's, who's the head of Joint Advisor, okay. Joint Advisor Group and the author of Wealth and Happiness. Uh, interviewed him for my wealth chapter. And I gave him the very blunt softball question of, uh, I was making pretty good money three years ago, right. and I visited my buddy Joe, who's a broke musician in Nashville, right. <laughs> and I once saw him reuse a plastic solo cup for a month. <laughs> Why was Joe so much happier than me when I saw him? And he said, well, take a, take a small example of an unwealthy person facing the same problem as a wealthy person. Let's say their sink breaks. You have um, the wealthy person will go on Yelp yep. and find the five-star top Platinum right. edition uh, guy to come in and fix it. And while he's fixing it, the guy's upstairs trading stocks in his right. underwear. And they never interact. And yep. the guy takes it's off. It's all done through the app. All yeah. done through the app. You take Joe, for example. If his sync breaks, he'll do one of a few things. He'll try to learn how to fix it himself. Mm-hmm. So he'll learn something. Or he'll call his friend's cousin, who's a plumber. Right. The guy comes over. They share a be- beer together. Right. And have a good time. Yeah. So you have... There's a... There's an implicit correlation between wealth and happiness in our society that doesn't really always exist. Uh, wealth can be used to buy happiness, but you have to buy it in the same way that unwealthy people are buying happiness, which is creating, facilitating more social interaction and creating more compassion and empathy in your life. A great example of this is uh, David himself, very wealthy man, owns a financial advisory group, but when he goes on vacation, he doesn't just sit in a resort for a month and eat caviar. He goes as many exotic places as he can, plus 
he invites his plumber and his really? children's teachers, and he just takes uh, a dozen people with him, right. families all up and down the socioeconomic spectrum, because he knows that it's that interaction and that learning that's going to create the happiness, not the luxury. Absolutely. You talked about the um, the price of happiness. So what is the current market value of uh, price of happiness? What's the current go- going rate for that now? Yeah, happiness <laughs> happiness is trading over the counter at twenty three dollars <laughs> twelve cents, <laughs> or twenty three handshakes in the day, or whatever. Yeah, or greetings. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so dive a little bit into your book and you know why you wrote the book. Yeah, absolutely. Right, I guess with so, that. So uh, when I was back at Epic, I'll get a little personal here. Okay. Uh, when I was back at Epic, high performing, doing pretty well. Uh, making good money, and then I was diagnosed with clinical depression. It almost surprised me in a way, because I thought, this doesn't make sense. Uh, My inner German brain was (laughs) like, the ingredients aren't there. Um, I've got the cool apartment, the cool friends, all this stuff. And what I realized was there's a dichotomy. There are two types of happiness out there. There's pleasure that you would get from drinking a Coca-Cola, and there's true happiness that you would get from having a conversation with a friend. And I had based my life around all these pleasures and all this superficial stuff right. that my, my real happiness, my, my fulfillment was almost atrophying like an untrained muscle. Wow. So I thought um, for a while, I, that's when I started researching psychology and interviewing people and kind of casually just learning more about happiness, almost like trying to diagnose and fix myself. Uh, I didn't want to take an antidepressant. I wanted to just uh, learn and power through it as best I could myself right. before relying on medication. And it got to the point where I'd, I felt like I had built myself back up, like right. I was back in, ha- I was fit and happiness, yeah, yeah. right? And I told my, I felt comfortable to tell my friends about it. Hey guys, I actually was way depressed for a while, but but don't worry, I kind of figured it out. Right, and I'm right. back, <laughs> I'm back, right? Yeah. Hey. And what happened was I had more and more people asking to meet me one-on-one after that conversation saying, Chris, I think I'm depressed too. Uh, I just feel numb. I feel directionless. Can we talk? And that happened at such an alarming rate. I had five people the first week and then 10 people and then my friends and their friends and their friends. Who's this guy who studied happiness all this time and seemed to have just made himself super happy in the span of six months? Right. So I thought, I, I feel great that I've helped myself and now I feel compelled to help the rest of my millennial friends right because uh, again we live in a society that's going to push us towards this this tempest this cocktail of depression inducing um, lifestyle so I thought I need to keep people out of this chasm I almost fell into and the book became sort of an extension of my arms to keep people from falling into it so I knew I wanted to fill the book not with just what I had learned in the past six months, but really make something that my generation could sink their teeth into. That could be our our beacon, our guide to that uh, modern happiness. So that was when I decided to travel. Uh, I went to Cozumel, Mexico, Vietnam, China. I spoke to millennials from 31 different countries. Wow. I spoke to millionaires, monks, gurus, as many people who would have a frank conversation with me about what it means to be happiness and happy in the modern age. And while I'm doing this, I did about 1500 hours of neuroscience and positive psychology research to back up their claims with the science and happiness research from the past 10 years. It's just fascinating your background and your story, uh, going from a diagnosed clinically depressed to writing the book 
on on the subject of happiness. Uh, I mean, the complete opposite spectrum. But I think what the doors that, like you explained, that open to you, these people that um, might have been uh, hesitant to raise their hand or have 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 that type of conversation. But when you um, right out front acknowledge that, then they can say, "Well, this is a guy I can maybe can talk to because now he knows both sides of the coin, right?" Um, and also maybe, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, has this been your experience with especially this this generation that has this label that, that you can't go a day, a half a day, an hour without hearing millennial, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, and the stories you hear from the tech startups to the uh, the kids, if you will, that are funded in the tens of millions of dollars, right, even before they've left college in some cases. Um, and we have this perception, media, if you will, of that's what this this generation is the golden generation that's just like everything they touch is just magic right mm-hmm. but is this uh, come into play where um i imagine I, I tell people one day when i grow up i'm going to be a millennial when i grow up one day right <laughs> <laughs> but i think if you're in that generation it, is it yes or yes is that um you know if you haven't gotten that money don't you feel like um the expectation is so high I, how do you compete with that, right? How do you, uh, is there, you don't have, you never hear like just an average millennial or below average, right? The expectation, yeah. right? Yeah, any article that starts with the oh, average yeah. millennial is followed by a very depressing statement. Well, like the average millennial has $43,000 in student debt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think... But all the stories we hear is the uber successful ones. I mean, just like the mm-hmm. the the uh, geniuses, right? Yeah, absolutely. So how do you compete that, with that if you're... The average millennial, right? Yeah, <laughs> or college exactly. kid. They used to. They didn't have a name. They would just be the twenty-somethings or whatever, right? Yeah, and um, I'm speaking a little bit for your generation here, but I think the baby boomers. A, a good vision of success was: I can buy a house, I can support a family, I can send my kids to college. That's going to make me feel fulfilled and right. feel successful. And there, and you guys, to a degree, grew up in an era where that was also financially fe- very feasible. Um, the millennials are in more dire financial strait, and we also have the the, the standards are set, yeah, uh, ex- phenomenally high. Right, we've all seen the social unattainable network. almost. Yeah. yeah, you know, go to college, start Facebook. Right, That's right, standard now. <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. right, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then, if you're not, you're a failure. Exactly, yeah. You could have shot higher. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's right. no. I, I think you've got kind of an Everest base camp yeah. where people can reach that and feel all right. Well, I've accomplished something, and right. I'm not really sure that that really exists as much anymore in the millennial psyche. Yeah. And that's that's just one little factor that played into I think what we what we're facing in a happiness an unhappiness epidemic that's right. plaguing millennials. Another one is um, proximity to family. Yeah. I have a friend Eddie who uh, lives in Madison and even though he's a very successful entrepreneur, he's probably worth uh, low seven figures, he his mom calls him once a week and she says, when are you going to move home? I miss you. I want you to live with the family. Yeah. Do you feel emotionally supported? So the money, yeah. to her, money doesn't matter. It's, yeah. Do you feel emotionally healthy and supported? Right. Well, you look at the 22-year-old who just started working at um, like a big four consulting firm or just has a quote-unquote great job. Right, right. Oil. If they come home really burnt out from work or yeah. their boss accosted them, they come home, they don't have that family uh, social safety net left. Right. They may have, in my case, I had two roommates, one of whom I hated and <laughs> I had a beer and I had Xbox and I had Facebook. Those yeah. were 
my family right, yeah. when after you move out. So I think it, it's a it's a concoction of all these these factors that come together and just slam into a millennial right when they're about twenty two, and uh, we're just not talking about it enough. I think every to some degree, most millennials out there are silent sufferers. Right. Yeah. And I can see that. The good news is, at the same time, we had the financial. Our parents were hit by that financial recession in mm-hmm. '08. Uh, that was when the positive psychology world got flipped on its head. Okay. That was a year that the Germans, uh, German scientists, came out and said, <clears throat> "There are two types of happiness. We've, we've very clearly discovered that you have temporary happiness." But you can also build happiness like a muscle. Right. There are ways you can become more, uh, you can build it like um, over time. Right. And what that really did for the happiness community was it said this old theory called uh, hedonic, the hedonic set point where we're born with a genetically allotted amount of happiness. Yeah, that kid's just cheery. He's always cheery, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The idea that happiness is all temporary and it fluctuates. Yeah. Um, that got turned on its head. So we now knew uh, we can build happiness over time. We can train it. It's something trainable. And that created this whirlwind, uh, this renaissance of happiness research in 2008 where the scientists were asking, okay, how is it? What are the things we need to do to build happiness? Well, it's not just make a ton of money and try to buy it later. We know that for sure. That didn't work out. So what are those things? And... So well, hold that thought for a second, because we're going to come back to you in a second, because that was kind of my, one of my next questions is uh, if you couldn't narrow down um, takeaways for our audience for three mm-hmm. things that could kind of make a happier day for themselves. Right. And we didn't even get it talked about meditation yet. Yeah. Classes. So uh, hold that for a second. So um, before we switch and start talking all things law and legal and um, intellectual property, uh, Chris, give us like a what's a good way for people to re- find you online or reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is chrisbush.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-B-U-T-S-C-H. We Germans, we love our consonants. <laughs> right. So chrisbush.com. And my, my happiness um, trifecta okay. are my, my book, The Millennial's Guide to Making Happiness. Right. And uh, I also do speaking engagements. So I've, I frequently speak at business clubs, Kiwanis okay. clubs. I've spoken, I've guest lectured at Emory University. Nice. And lastly, I have mindfulness training, which okay. uh, maybe we'll get back to. Okay. Um, it's all about, I've created a meditation regimen specifically tailored for the modern working professional. So fast, efficient, based in science. Um, well, pleasure talking to you. We could do a whole show on this. We may need to have you do a happiness show in the studio. We could use that <laughs> every every week, month, or day, or whatever. Yeah, I'd love to, Rich. Yeah, absolutely. So stand by. So um, uh, once again, you're listening to the Co-Founders Podcast Startup Show. Rich Casanova here, uh, and a shout out to Craig Williams, who's on the road in um, Florida these uh, today. And uh, now we're going to turn our attention to um, all things law and legal for entrepreneurs, specifically intellectual property. We'll uh, start off with that topic. And we have uh, Wakisha Jackson from Jackson Low Law Group. Uh, welcome uh, to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So um, before we jump into law and legal and all that good stuff, let's tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, I started out as an electrical engineer uh, really? with uh, IBM. I did that prior to going to law school. And there were two tracks I could have taken, either become more of a techie or in management. So I decided to get my MBA to learn more about the business side to see if I wanted to pursue management. 
And in that, I decided I don't really want to let go of all my technical training. So I went back to school. I went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) And received my JD. And I thought that it was a way to combine both the business training and the technical training, electrical engineering space, um, to practice intellectual property. So I hope um, small business owners, inventors, entrepreneurs uh, start out their businesses, protect and maintain their intellectual property assets. And you started all this when you were 12 or what? (laughs) Wow, that's a (laughs) lifetime. (laughs) Um, and you make me feel like a slacker here or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. The, the background from electrical engineer to law. And so why intellectual property? Um, again, primarily built upon the foundation that I'd already set, um, with electrical engineering. I knew several people who had ideas, um, when I was working at, at IBM and I would say, maybe you should get a patent on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and they'd say, how? I don't know, but I think you, <laughs> this maybe something you should do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I started to research it and really understand, um, what intellectual property was, how to obtain patents, trademarks, what rights that they um, offer by the different types of intellectual property. And I thought, you know, this would be really interesting and allow me to, again, build on my education and also be able to help people as they start out in business. Well, big time. This is perfect for those co-founders and startups. This is obviously the, the audience and for the show and so forth. So, But talk to us about, um, you know, this idea of misnomers between uh, intellectual property, copyright, patents, and so forth. Okay, patents protect I, protect ideas. They protect, uh, you have to have proof of, proof of concept, so you have to be able to articulate how to make something. Composition of matter, improvements, things like that. It has to be new, novel, uh, non-obvious. So those are things that are protected. Non-obvious. Non-obvious. Like that, yeah. So something that's not already out there in existence or an obvious um, improvement thereof. Uh, pa- copyrights uh, protect tangible uh Expressions that are fixed in a tangible medium, so paintings, poems, books, things like that, films, music, that's all protected by copyrights. Okay. Trademarks protect, protect your, your business names, logos, slogans, things like that are protected under trademark. So in one business, you may need to have all of those in different uh, uh, capacities, right? Yes. So as an example, for software patents, you can get a, a patent on a software application, but you not, can also protect it under copyright because of the coding that's involved. Wow. Um, I'm a huge fan of the shark tank and this is always the topic that comes up, right? Especially when somebody brings a product to the tank and, um, you know, this idea of patent pending, talk to us about that, you know, is the process and the window. And then, so is it kind of what it says is that they're waiting for that to be the final approval by the the U S patent office. So you can get patent pending. There are two types of patents that you can apply for with the patent office, patent applications. There's a provisional application, which basically you describe your invention, give an overview. It's not as detailed as a non-provisional application. A provisional application is definitely far less costly than a non-provisional, but the benefit of filing that is that you get the benefit of a filing date, meaning in the United States, we're on a first-to-file system, so he who files first will be awarded the patent application. So if you, you and I come up with the same idea today and I beat you to the patent office today then, and I'm awarded a patent application, then even though we came up with it the same time, same day, my application is on file prior to yours. Right. And so that's the benefit of a provisional. Um, that will give you patent pending status. Okay. What that means is you have a bookmark in front of the patent office. Right. You have 12 months, however, to convert that over to what's called a non-provisional application. Okay. A non-provisional is going to be examined by the Patent and Trademark Office. They're going to do an additional search, and 99.9% of the time, they're going to reject you. 
Okay. And wow. so <laughs> that's pretty harsh. What are you, you have to, to go say? back and forth with a patent attorney. I, I would encourage you to have a patent attorney to respond to the patent office on your behalf to present to them why your uh, application should not be rejected and why it should move forth. Patent pending status can take up to three years wow. to actually get an application that's granted and issued into a patent. That's crazy. And during that process, would a firm like yours, um, do they kind of stay in touch with the patent also over that over that course of the year, or you have to kind of wait back wait back to hear from them as far as status? Or right, once your non provisional patent application is on file, uh-huh. it takes about eighteen months to hear back from the patent That's office. Crazy. They so, need to hire some more people over there, yeah. Right. They, they recently <laughs> opened up additional offices that are supposed to help with the process d- due to the backlog. So there's yeah. an office in Denver, Dallas, and I think that there's also going to be one in Atlanta. Really? And there's also one in Silicon Valley. There was only the one in D.C. prior. But they have opened up additional office to help with the backlog. So when they open the one in here in Atlanta, you could kind of go over and deliver in some brownies or some cookies and kind of move things along a little quicker. Yeah. <laughs> Not so sure about that, but it's worth a try. Yeah. Um, so there's so many topics to cover here. So maybe uh, if you want to kind of guide what your specialty or, or what your focus is on, but from a business standpoint, all these things you mentioned from the trademark to the copyright, um, is it a fair question to ask like uh, what somebody might expect in terms of fees or what they might budget for these or uh, are some of these flat, you know, just filing fees? So my firm, Jackson and Low Law Group, we offer a flat fee. Okay. Um, so typically for provisionals, which is the least expensive, depending on the complexity of your sure. idea, you can expect to spend around $5,000 in the application process alone with our firm. Okay. The patent office also has their own fees that are associated, uh-huh. and those vary by the size of the entity. So if you're a micro-entity status, your fees would be cheaper than small entity as opposed to large entity. For a non-provisional, those fees range between eighty five hundred and fifteen thousand to wow. get that application filed. Wow. That includes drafting the application, drawings that are going to be necessary, and again, there are USPTO filing fees that vary based on the size of the entity, micro entity, small entity, and large entity. So, can I file as a micro and just continue that, and then grow to this global brand and not have to pay the upgrade fees? Or? Uh, if if you certify to be a micro entity at the time of filing, that's all that's required to pay oh, those nice. fees. Yeah. Always trying to figure out how to crack the code on the system here. And speaking of global, um, how does this apply outside of our borders? Well, to apply for a patent here in the United States, that will only get your protection here in the United States, which means you can prevent others from making, using, selling, offering for sale your invention domestically only. Right, yeah. If you want protection outside of the United States, that's a different process. Costs more money, takes more time. (laughs) All of that above, yeah. Right. And there are timelines to consider if you want to do that. So those are some discussions that you need to have with the attorney that you choose. So depending on when you file your application, there's a certain amount of time that you need to file an international, which is called a PCT application, to cover other countries. Now, of these topics that we mentioned, um, what area does either your firm specialize in or just what types of folks tend to uh, migrate your way? We do all areas of intellectual property. So we cover patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets. We help aspiring entrepreneurs. We help small business owners. We help inventors. We help athletes. We help artists. So those are typically the people that we help protect their, uh, their creative works and their innovative efforts. You got this down. You say it very concisely, right? <laughs> right to the point, right? Um, I need to take a few lessons from you. I tend to drag out a, a question. Um, so um, tell us about the, the kind of the size of your firm, your startup. How long have you all been uh, you know, underway? And uh, what's next on the horizon for you, I guess? 
Okay. Our firm is with, we have two full-time attorneys. Uh-huh. That's myself and my partner, Trefany Lowe. We also have three independent contractors that work for, work with us, okay. um, depending on the v- amount of volume that we have. Um, we have a virtual assistant and a virtual paralegal that also work with our firm. So we've been in business for three years, um, but business has definitely grown over those three years. Yeah. So we're definitely looking to, to expand. So. Yeah, what what would expansion look like for you guys? Just uh, building out the team, or you're not you don't need to go into other markets, right? Because you can do all this stuff, you know, virtual or online. Right. We don't need to get into any other markets, but we definitely want to maybe bring some of those independent contractors on full time, okay. so that we can have a full team of attorneys to serve our clients. Okay. And then lastly, what are some um, uh, misnomers or challenges or do's and don'ts or more of the don'ts? Because uh, Sometimes is it um, do people have the perception sometimes if they claim the domain name that they kind of have the rights to that brand and that name? Yes, that happens all the time, and that is not true. Right. So um, do's and don'ts, definitely don'ts. Don't share your idea with people without some type of confidentiality or non-disclosure agreement in place, um, primarily because you want to preserve the confidentiality or the confidential nature of whatever your idea is. And uh, two, you know, people might like you, but they might like your idea a little bit better. And so right. that happens sometimes. <laughs> Uh, we may need to talk off the air because we're kicking around some new uh, um, new ideas here at the studio and beyond. And I'm so excited about a couple of our uh, our ventures, but I do have I'm really hesitant about this um, disclosing too much or anything, right? To give and then it's about kind of giving the first to market and giving them you know a head start of us, especially if they have more resources, right? Um, but this NDA is is there a flat rate on that or? Yes, there's a flat rate on the NDA. Um, again, it depends on sure, the scope. Sure, there's some variables, yeah. Right. But one thing to keep in mind about an NDA, the importance of it, from my perspective, is to preserve your confidential nature. Because once you make what's considered a public disclosure and you're not having an agreement that says this information is confidential, then you start a clock to running that could be a statutory bar that would prevent you from even being able to obtain a patent. Really? So if you disclose something to us, you know, that are in this room oh, yeah. right now without any type of agreement in place saying it's confidential, 12 months from that date, you would not be able to apply for a patent application because that would be considered a public disclosure. Not be able to apply, period. Period. So it's kind of like public domain. Yes, it would be public domain at that point. Well, that's kind of scary. Very scary. So that goes back to maybe buying your domain name as well, right? Yes. You want to buy your domain name, but you also want to make sure if you're going to use that, that would be covered under trademark to see if you yeah. have a rights to trademark it. Um, perform searches as well uh, to make sure that you have the rights to use whatever name you come up with. Because two things I try and tell entrepreneurs. One, you want to protect your rights to your creative efforts, your innovative right. works. But you also want to make sure that you're not infringing on something that already exists out there. Yeah. Um I remember back in the day, I bought the, uh, when Google, before they went IPO, I actually bought the domain names, um, googleipo.com, ipogoogle.com, yada, yada. But I thought I was all excited, you know, like I'll uh, get in on it somehow. And um, I actually got a, um, a letter from Google, from their legal team saying cease and desist. Cease and desist. So I'm like, it's yours. It's fine. Just go ahead and take it. Whatever you need to do, whatever, right? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, dang, we're, we're at, I can't believe we're out of time. I have... Um, Lots of other questions, uh, especially on this ND. Well, this NDA, um, you know, we may need to talk off the air because we're, we're out of time. But because my thing is like, who do you get to sign that? And if they sign that, how much, how binding can that be or whatever, right? Um, it has to be written, I guess, in the correct manner. Yes, it definitely has to be written in the correct manner. Um, let me just make this plug right quick. Yeah. Um, I wrote a book. It's called Hashtag Start Out Smart, What Every Entrepreneur Needs to Know Now, Not Later. Um, there is a section in there on NDAs that people need to understand that the NDA is only binding between the parties that signed it. So if 
there's a third party that's not a part to the NDA, then they're not bound by that. But also you want to make sure that in your NDA there's also a non-compete clause. Right, How right. long does NDA last? So there are all the, these different terms that people don't consider. So uh, it, if you're thinking about starting a business, have a business, have an idea, I would suggest that you get my book. It's on Amazon. It's uh, hashtag start out smart. And uh, it has some, it's in written in layman terms, plain English, yeah. so that people can understand it. That's a great name, hashtag startup, uh, right? <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. So, uh, and give out, how would people reach out to you online? Uh, we, our law firm website is www.jllawgroup.com. Um, email address is wdjackson at jllawgroup.com. And you can find us on Twitter at, at jllawgroup. And we also have a Facebook page, jllawgroup. PC. Well, this uh, this flew by. I had a couple more pages of questions. <laughs> we may have to do episode number two. Uh, so, real quick, Chris, can you give us uh, th- those um, happiness tips for the day? Absolutely. If you will? Yeah. So here's a great happiness tip: find a way to do somebody a favor today. Bonus points if it's somebody that you don't like that you're frustrated <laughs> with. That will make them like you a lot more. <laughs> right. So find a way to do a little favor and give yourself five minutes of silence today. Oh, listen to some light music, um, make your spouse rub your feet, but just uh, grant yourself five minutes of silence. You deserve it. It'll do a lot for your mental health. Uh, well said. Um, and one of my favorite quotes is it says, um, um, how does it go? Um, no, I, I, I had it a minute ago and I just lost it or whatever, but it was about simplicity, right, in, in life and um, uh, taking a lot of distractions out of our out of our life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll think about. It. I'll tell you when it, when we when I think when I remember it. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the Buddhists call it monkey mind, uh-huh. and so my parting words are uh, tame your monkey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll leave you on that. So think about that one and uh, enjoy your five minutes of uh, downtime. Rich Casano, once again, on behalf of Craig Williams, and we work. We're uh, closing out another episode of the Co-Founders Podcast Show. See you next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Co-Founders Podcast, brought to you in part by WeWork, the world's largest network of co-working spaces. More info at WeWork.com and the Pro Business Channel, uploading the future. More info at ProBusinessChannel.com. Use the social media links here to share this show. To submit a guest request or listen to more episodes, visit CoFoundersPodcast.com.